0: This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we talk to writer James Walker about Saturday Night and Sunday Morning by Alan Sillitoe. The novel follows Arthur Seaton, a rebellious young factory worker who toils all week so he can spend the weekends drinking and fraternising with married women. But his life becomes more difficult when the consequences of his affairs with two married women begin to reveal themselves, and his burgeoning relationship with a young girl may mean he has to settle down. Sillito's writing celebrates the working-class spirit of Arthur, and is a vital, alive depiction of the Nottingham streets in which he lives. Alan Sillito was born in Nottingham in 1928. He served in the Royal Air Force and, like Burgess, spent time in Malaya during the emergency. He retired from the military and took up writing, living in France and Spain, where he formed a relationship with Robert Graves and began writing his most famous works. Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, and The Loneliness of the Long-Distance Runner. He died in 2010 after writing over 70 works of fiction, non-fiction, poetry, drama, and children's stories. James Walker is a writer who specialises in the fiction of Nottingham. He is a former member of the Alan Sillitoe Committee, an organisation created by Sillitoe's son, David, to raise awareness of his work. James created the Silito Trail, a multimedia digital platform in which he explored the enduring relevance of Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. He has written about Silito for BBC Radio 3 and was the last person to interview Silito before he died. His current project is Whatever People Say I Am, a comic series challenging stereotypes. It takes its title from Arthur Seaton's declaration in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. For all the links to James's projects and more, head to this episode's description, where you'll also find a list of the books mentioned. This is the last episode of the first series of 99 novels, but we'll return with more episodes in autumn 2022. Stay tuned to the Burgess Foundation's channel in the meantime for more explorations of Burgess's work. I'm Graham Foster of the Burgess Foundation, and I spoke to James Walker in March 2022. James, thanks for joining us on the Ninety Nine Novels podcast. Uh, first, we we like to to learn a little bit about your relationship with with the book in question, with Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. And so, how how did you first discover the the novel, and and what did you first make of it?
1: Like all of my reading, it came via Morrissey and the Smiths. Um, I grew up in the eighties and. I just loved the lyrics of the Smiths, and there were so many references to Sheila Delaney, Keith Waterhouse, Alan Silito, I mean, just everything, Oscar Wilde, and being an obsessive fan, I then went and read the books and wanted to find out more about the quotes, and as time went on, I moved into literature and away from music, if you like, so I have Morrissey to thank for my, um, for, for my vast interest in in different authors. My first impressions of the book were it was absolutely incredible because it was writing about things I hadn't really heard before in literature. I mean, if you you take the opening to the book, there's a 21-year-old guy called Arthur Seaton who quenches his payday thirst by um, necking loads of beer in his local, The White Horse. He has a drinking game with a sailor he throws over a couple in the pub, and then he falls down the stairs headfirst. I mean, <laughs> what a thing to read about, really. But what was really interesting for me about this character, this rebellious character, Arthur Seaton, was he wasn't just a drunk. It, he's, he is belligerent, and he is hedonistic, but he's very sceptical of all thorn, all forms of authority. And that had a very profound effect on me as a I don't know seventeen year old. It kind of installed in me that confidence to question everything and to believe in yourself and to not trust authority, you know, just because someone has a suit on or they're in a higher position than you. So Saturday night and Sunday morning was a was a life changing book and it came at the perfect age.
0: Yeah, I think I think sort of many books uh it, it, it really Depends on when you read them as to how they sort of resonate with you on a on a mm-hmm. sort of fundamental level. Books like uh, *Catcher in the Rye*, which is also on Burgess's yeah. list, um, that sort of thing. Um, but it was published in 1958, and and I mean, to read it in the 80s is one thing, but I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to to read the novel when it first came out, uh, which of course Burgess did. Um, why do you think Burgess included it in his list? And, uh, And what was the novel's reputation in 1984 when the list
1: was compiled? In his introduction to the 99 novels, Burgess says, I believe that the primary substance I have considered in making my selection is human character. It is the godlike task of the novelist to create human beings whom we accept as living creatures filled with complexities and armed with free will. Well, <laughs> you don't get that more than in Arthur Seaton. I mean, this is one of literature's greatest ever antiheroes. He does whatever he likes, no matter what the consequences. You know, he can be an absolute bastard, but we forgive him for that because he's honest and he knows who he is. Um, and I think Burgess would probably appreciate that authenticity in this character that, I don't know, it doesn't feel as if he's mapped and planned out. It, 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 it's a character that really comes out of the page. You know, you, Seton is such a believable character. And, I mean, there's so many things I could quote from the book that illustrate this, but let, let me give you one example. There's a scene where um, Doreen is having a gin bath. Now, Doreen is one of the two sisters that Arthur's been getting it on with, and she has a gin bath as in she's trying to have an abortion um, for Arthur's child. And while he arranges this, he then goes out on the raz, and while he's out, he gets it on with another woman. And there's this one line which says, "'Never had an evening begun so sadly and ended so well, "'he reflected, peeling off his socks.'" I mean, that is, can you imagine writing that today? <laughs> I mean, it's, there's no way on earth that would ever get published. So imagine that in 1958, you know, with, with the, the, the rigidity of social rules and what is accepted behavior and, you know, that kind of streets where everyone's observing each other's behavior. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. But I think in terms of context for when books were published, you you, you know, and and you're thinking about its reputation in in 1984. Well, you know, of course, the 80s were were the period of Thatcherism. And, you know, Thatcher famously um, said, there's no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families. Now, she actually said that in 1987 in an interview with Women's Own. But I imagine reading that book in the 1980s, Seaton's selfish individualism certainly <laughs> chided with the kind of aesthetics of that period, you know. And again, there's so many examples of this in the book. You know, if I won the lottery, I'd only look after me own. I'd make bonfires out of the begging letters. You know, you, you've got to look after yourself in life because nobody else will do it for you. You know, that, that is a message for the book. But, you know... Seton is certainly not a Thatcherite. He he doesn't belong in anyone's gang, you know, and he certainly doesn't buy into consumerism either. You know, there's another scene in The Factory where he says some blokes would drink piss if it was handed to him in China cups. And he refuses to drink out of the urn, that the the tea urn that other people are drinking out of. So he's very much an individual. So that would have resonated in the 80s, but he's certainly not. Somebody that would have had any kind of political allegiance to anyone other than himself.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's sort of reflected in that that refrain that goes through the novel. You know, it's a good life if you don't weaken. Mm. Um, uh, you, you know, it, it's it's all about being sort of tough and standing on your own, essentially. Although. That refrain also appears as it's a hard life if you don't weaken. You know, it, it's it sort of plays around with with that idea throughout the novel, doesn't it? Um, Burgess reviewed the novel obviously in in ninety nine novels. Uh, his review is not completely effusive. It, it he he likes the book. He, uh, he likes it enough to include in his his selection of ninety nine novels. But he, he calls Silito's writing for boasts and sprawling and undisciplined. Uh, how fair do you think that criticism is?
1: Um, Silito didn't do an MA in creative writing. He refused to be edited. And it's this that gives the book its absolute authenticity and rawness. Now, I, I do think that Silito needed editing, uh, and I would agree with that. Um, but if it had become a clean, crisp novel, would Seaton have had so much authenticity, you know? And yes, there are parts, I think, that, that, that could have been sharpened up a little bit. But, you know, Burgess also says that the better novelists write with their ears. And let me give you one example of the absolute sharpness of Silito's writing. So this is this is a bit where he's um, discussing the local, the, the local gossip. Fat Mrs Bull, the gossiper, stood with her fat arms folded over her apron at the yard end, watching people pass by on their way to work. With pink face and beady eyes, she was a tight-fisted defender of her tribe, queen of the yard, because she had lived there for 22 years. Earning names like the News of the World and the Loudspeaker because she watched the factory go in every morning and afternoon to glean choice gossip for retail later. I mean, that is absolutely incredible writing. And that line, gleaning choice gossip for retail later, you know, the the fact that people within these communities are, are using whatever system way or, 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 or whatever is available to them to, to to raise their own kind of status that that writing beautiful so I would say to Burgess yes um, there are parts that um, are undisciplined because silito was an undisciplined writer you know he left school early he, he wrote as he saw things um, but I think we also need to recognize there is some absolutely beautiful pieces of prose as well and it's very interesting this this comment you know because there's been lots of talk um about the lack of working class writers now and not having that authentic voice, so you know at least at that time. Silito had the opportunity to send off work and get it published I wonder if um, a Silito of today will be quite as successful.
0: Yeah I I think that's an interesting thing to think about really the because I do think the novel is is undisciplined like Burgess said but I think it sort of fits with what is being written about, as you've you've said, and and Arthur himself is a, an undisciplined character, mm. and he and he's sort of too clever for his own good in a way. So the the <laughs> yeah. the way the 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 book is written really fits with with Arthur and yeah. and who Arthur is in many ways. It, uh, that sort of reflects Burgess's work in A Clockwork Orange, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I mean one one thing I would add though is, I mean. Silito does return to a lot of these themes and actually a lot of scenes that happen in Saturday night and Sunday morning do appear in other bits of work and that is the benefit of having an editor, somebody that can say, no, look, you know, if you're going to revisit these themes, you've got to approach them differently. But uh, uh, as an actual authentic voice, uh, as you say, you know, it is undisciplined like Arthur Seaton. It works. It really does. I mentioned The Clockwork Orange
0: there, that this novel um Silito's novel was published 4 years before A Clockwork Orange and I can see threads between the two novels uh the youth violence a suspicion of authority obviously A Clockwork Orange is a lot more stylized but um the the impact of A Clockwork Orange was was huge in 1962 did did Silito's novel have a a similar impact in in 1958 how how was it received by the literary establishment
1: well i think one thing that, that that we have to talk about and that you've just mentioned there with the clockwork orange is the violence you know that saturday night and sunday morning is absolutely rampack with violence you know you've got women fighting women you've got men fighting men you've got husbands against wives you know, you, you're talking about a community where everyone lived inside each other's pockets, you know, a tight terraced streets. Everybody knew what was going on. Everybody lived the same kind of lifestyle. You know, you worked at the rally, you went to the pub, you came home. And as a result of that, you know, Salito's painted a very particular picture of working class life. And that obviously um, was very difficult for. Publishers to accept you know pr- prior to this a lot of working class novels were you know they were written from a middle class perspective, looking down you know that that view from the top of the hill, as it were um but Silito was writing from the inside and it was so raw, it was so unrelenting and it was so unapologetic that that this was a real trouble uh for people to deal with i mean let, let me give you a couple of examples. Um so when um, Arthur is taking one of his ladies off for a bit of fun, Silito writes, he knew he was hurting her, squeezing her wrist as he led her deeper into the wood, but it did not occur to him to relax his hold. Now, again, if you think about a, a line like that in the, you know, today in the era of Me Too, I, I mean, it would... <laughs> I don't think you'd even be able to publish that nowadays, to be honest with you. Publishing that in 1958, you know, that, that almost suggestion of forced sex, it would have been very, very controversial. And that, that's the thing with Silito's writing. You know, the, the violence is in the adjectives a lot of the time. You know, he's dragging people by the hand. The sun is beating in your face. You know, if he kissed someone, he smacks them. You know, it, it's... the people are violent, the language is violent, and this was difficult for people to um, deal with. And there's a beautiful scene where he um, walks home from the pub, though, that, again, (laughs) it's getting across this kind of violence of this character. So it goes, he remembered his journey to the house, a vague memory of battles with lampposts and walls and curbstones, of knocking into people who told him to watch his step and threatened to drop him one. Voices of anger and the hard, unsympathetic stones of houses and pavements. I mean, just everything is aggression there, from the environment to the things under your feet to a lamppost becomes a threatening thing, you know. So I think this was very, very difficult for publishers to deal with and a lot wanted a more edifying narrative, you know. Um, And there was a genuine fear I think that the book would incite hatred for decent working men among its potential readership. I mean, there was a Nottingham councillor that wanted the book banned because he thought the reputation for Nottingham would just be absolutely uh, terrible. But I think what we need to remember is that Silito grew up in abject poverty. I, I, I mean hopefully, a kind of poverty that is unimaginable today. You know, his mother turned to prostitution at one point to feed the family, and his father, who was violent and illiterate, was imprisoned because he couldn't afford to pay um, the food he'd acquired on tick. I mean, the the silitoes moved about a lot. So, you know he is writing with such devastating accuracy about um, the world in which he grew up in that it absolutely scared the living daylights out of the uh, literati. I mean, they didn't know (laughs) how to deal with it. And quite interestingly, um, one of the books on Burgess's list, of course, is John Brain's Room at the Top. Well, when the critic Peter Green read uh, Silito's novel, he said the room at the top was like a vicarage tea party in comparison. You've
0: indicated some of Arthur's sort of upbringing there, and Arthur is is a an angry and violent character, and and often quite unlikable. I mean, you've you've given examples of his his violence towards women, uh, you know, his his general demeanor, um, but. One thing you haven't mentioned is that he, he shows signs of guilt and shame when it comes to his behaviour. Uh, just glimmers, you know, not not uh, sort of big monologues or anything like that, but there are there are sort of signs that that he, he doesn't like his own behaviour. Um, do you think that the novel has a moral core? And, and do you think that reveals itself as the story progresses?
1: I don't think it's so much that Seton doesn't like what he's doing i think it's more of a case that he can't help himself you know and and that is the great contradiction that all of us face as human beings you know we we, we may want to do something where we may know what the right thing is but you know there's something pulling us um in a in a different direction sometimes um silito was certainly not the kind of person to pass judgment on others you know and I definitely, definitely do not believe that he would set out to write a novel with a strong moral message. I, I just don't believe that he's that kind of person. Um, but clearly Arthur Seaton goes on a journey in that book, and um, we can see that um in the format of the book. You know, um, to go back to your early point about, you know, um, that. Burgess saying the book is undisciplined well that the book does have a format you know it's set in two parts Saturday night and Sunday morning and if we look at um, two quotes from those from each side we can see the trajectory that he goes on so the the opening to the book for it was Saturday night the best and bingiest glad time of the week one of the 52 holidays in the slow turning big wheel of the year A violent preamble to a prostrate Sabbath. Piled up passions were exploded on Saturday night, and the effect of a week's monotonous graft in the factory was swirled out of your system in a burst of goodwill. You followed the motto of be drunk and be happy, kept your crafty arms around female waists, and felt the beer going beneficially down into the elastic capacity of your guts. So, so the opening of the book and, and the first part, the Saturday night, is all about absolute indulgence and Arthur just going and living a lot by instinct, going out, having fun, getting into trouble, getting into scrapes. But in the second half of the book, he settles down with Doreen and he, 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 they start to consider uh, getting a place together. And he captures, Silito captures this um, change, I guess, um, in a scene where they go fishing. So to escape the noise of the factory, Arthur would go fishing with his mate and, and he makes this observation. Everyone in the world was caught somehow, one way or another, and those that weren't were always on the way to it. As soon as you were born, you were captured by fresh air that you screamed against the minute you came out. Then you were roped in by a factory, had a machine slung around your neck, and then you were hooked up the arse with a wife. Mostly, you were like a fish. You swam about with freedom, thinking how good it was to be left alone, doing anything you wanted to do, and caring about no one. When suddenly, splutch. The big hook clapped itself into your mouth, and you were caught. Without knowing what you were doing, you were chewed off more than you could bite and had to stick with the same piece of bait for the rest of your life. So I think rather than talking about the book in terms of morality or guilt, I I think the messages from Saturday night and Sunday morning are, one, don't let the bastards grind you down. And this is an ageless message, you know. There is always a bastard trying to grind you down, be that work, be that family, whatever. And secondly, as human beings, we're always going to get caught by something. You know, that could be a career. It could be a relationship. It could be an addiction. But you will get caught by something because that's just the way it is. And I think that what he is really saying to us is, you know, it is inevitable the kind of process of life, just make sure you have a fight before you settle down. Get everything out of the system, you know, have a bit of a battle and a brawl, and then, that, then sit down. And I think what he doesn't like is somebody that hasn't had fight, somebody that hasn't given life a shot. They've just gone straight into the marriage and not thought about who they are or their place in the world. And that really... Is the thing that makes this such a fantastic book because that is the human condition.
0: Yeah, I, I think there are so many sort of male characters in in the novel that are sort of thwarted in some way, whether that's by marriage or or the the, the job at the factory or or what whatever it may be. You see them sort of on the fringes of of, uh, of Arthur's world and and in the pubs and and you know in in their living rooms sometimes uh and i i think that that's a, a really good counterpoint for what you were 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 saying about arthur's opinion that you should you should have the the fight before before you you inevitably settle down although throughout the novel arthur shows signs of wanting to settle down doesn't he so when he's in bed with Brenda he has to run away in the morning before before her husband comes home but there's a line where he says that he he wonders what it would be like to be able to just lay in bed with a woman and and sort of live with a woman and so he does show signs of sort of being willing to to settle down doesn't he
1: yeah it, and again it it's it's just that real kind of internal uh, struggle, I mean, (laughs) let me give you another quote from the book, you know, this is after he's um, fallen down the stairs in, in the pub. He felt electric light bulbs shining and burning into the back of his head and sensed in the opening and closing flash of a second that his mind and body were entirely separate entities inconsiderately intent on going their different ways. You know, and that is that inner conflict that he has, you know. Yeah, it would be great, actually, to wake up every morning with someone you like and and not have to run off. But he's 21, don't forget. He's got energy. He's got a fat pay packet. He's got life running through his blood. He's not quite ready for that yet. So I I think that's why that conflict's there. You know, if Arthur Seaton had been, I don't know, 35, maybe it would be a bit different. Um, We've talked a lot about Arthur,
0: but um, perhaps one of the major characters in the novel is Nottingham itself as a city. It's an important aspect of Silito's novel, yet there there seems to be a sort of love-hate tension in both in Silito's narration and, and Arthur's sort of interaction with the city. What, what can you tell us about Silito's relationship with Nottingham and and how do you think his work fits with the literary landscape of the city, which is quite a, a rich literary landscape, I would say?
1: Nottingham um, traditionally has been a factory city, um, but what's been very important is it's never been defined by one kind of industry. You know, you, you, you would have people at players' factory, you'd have people at rally, you'd have people working down the pits. Uh, and what this meant is you had lots of people kind of living in different communities working in different industries but i guess having some kind of commonality in the way that they experienced life uh, the the conditions of employment how they socialized so i think that's a big part of uh, silito's writing and the way that he captured uh, nottingham during that period um One thing about Nottingham, I would say, probably because it's in the middle of the country, so it's neither north nor south, has generally overlooked is somewhere you drive through on your way to Manchester or London, you know. Um, That's meant that people can kind of just get on with their life and not worry about the way that they're kind of framed or presented in the media, as it were. And that, that has created if we were going to talk about a kind of general identity, a real sense of just getting on with your own thing and not worrying too much and not taking yourself too seriously. And and I, I see that um, all the time in Nottingham, in attitudes, in the way that people live, in the way that people act. I mean, the, the absolute classic for me was um, I, I was one of the founding directors of nottingham's unesco city of literature bid which we got in 2015 and and i told one of my mates i just after all this plan i just couldn't believe it that nottingham had been you know recognized as this unesco city of literature and i rang my mate and told him and he was just like and (laughs) just completely dismissive just just didn't care you know and the point there is that you know this is important to me and that's something i do but you know He's he's not bothered. And and I think that's a real kind of Nottingham attitude. I guess Nottingham as well kind of brands itself as a rebel city. I mean, if you look at the history of the place, it is quite incredible. You know, we burned down our castle in 1831. We're home to the Luddite rebellions. And, of course, there's that chap in the green tights that liked hang about in the woods. You know, you've got D.H. Lawrence, who... Made it possible for everyone to swear more freely with the Lady Chatterley trial. You've got Byron that stood up for the frame breakers. You know that the, there's so many examples of what we would classify as kind of rebellious figures, and that's just because it's always been a very working class city. So there's always been something to fight for. So I, I guess Silito's writing kind of um, fits into that in terms of his relationship with the city he loved Nottingham, he loved Nottingham people, he he came back regularly, but of course he's an intelligent man, you know, when he got pensioned off from the RAF, he was able to live an exciting life, he was able to move abroad, which is where he, 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 he penned Saturday night and Sunday morning, you know, sitting in the sunshine under an orange tree, he came back and he moved to London, he was married to an American woman, you know, Silito was obsessed with maps as well. You know, his room was full of them. So he had a real thirst for kind of travel and adventure. So he left Nottingham as as you would do, you know, when you have a desire to see different places. But I think he really, really loved the place as well. And he had a real affinity with the people here and, here, and came back lots and lots of times.
0: I, I think that's another parallel with, with Burgess, who left Manchester... Um at the start of the the second world war and and maintained a a sort of pride in the in his mancunian heritage and and went back often and the the manchester and the people of Manchester infected his his writing right the way through his career, even though he lived in Monaco and france and you know malaya uh, all over the world, basically, but Manchester still sort of loomed large. And that that's, strikes me as very similar to what you're saying mm. uh, about Sillitoe. One of the things I'm interested in in the novel is the actual writing of, of the, that the novel contains, which I, I think is endlessly fascinating. Uh, in 1979, Sillitoe said that, that the novel had no theme in his head except the joy of writing um and i think that 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 phrase the joy of writing is is evident on every page of the novel it sort of leaps off it and perhaps that that goes back to what burgess described as the undisciplined writing but it's sort of electric it it it's you know you can tell the writer of this novel had fun writing it do you think um that that silito's statement that the novel had no theme except for the joy of writing is is supportable? Do you think the novel has a deeper thematic resonance that goes beyond the, the, that sort of electric writing?
1: I think that when silito uh, was writing, I, I think, like many writers, he just enjoyed the joy of that process. You know, writing is a conversation with yourself. Writing is free therapy. Writing is a wonderful, indulgent, act that enables you to just make sense of your life and the world you live in so i imagine that when he sat down you know he he enjoyed the opportunity to write and i think that's a key thing here thinking of his life and the poverty that he grew up in you know his father saw buying a book as a waste of money as you would do if you couldn't afford to eat you know so when Silito says that, you know, he was enjoying the joy of writing, that meant he wasn't in the rally factory, you know, with that noise and bustle. You know, he, he had a liberty and freedom that came with writing. So I genuinely believe that he sat down and just loved that indulgent process of being able to tell the world how you feel. But clearly, (laughs) you know, we write for a reason, that there's something at the back of our head gnawing away at us that we want to convey and communicate with the rest of the world. Um, And there are lots and lots of themes in in Silito's work, you know. For me, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning is described as a working class book. And of course it is a working class book because it it's set in a working class environment, but it's a bit more nuanced than that. It It's an existential novel. You know, Arthur Seaton is trying to define his own meaning in life he, and making bad decisions, getting beaten up, getting in trouble. That's part of the process. But, you know, he's someone that's just trying to survive and make the most of difficult circumstances. And there's that line in the book, I think, that resonates with all of us. I'm me and nobody else. And whatever people think I am or say I am, that's what I'm not, because they don't know a bloody thing about me. So, you know, the the theme in this book is an individual struggling to survive you know a person figuring things out for themselves and getting it wrong but at least it was their decision uh, and not anyone else's and I'm sure that Silito didn't sit down and think I'm going to write a book about the human condition and the importance of making mistakes in life of course he didn't but you know what comes out of a book is from the back of someone's skull you know, and clearly there are themes in that book about individual freedom. And I should also point here, you know, Silito hated labels, you know, he didn't want to be a poster boy for anyone's gang. And he really, really hated the angry young men label, you know, uh, as he said, why would I be angry? I'm being paid to write. I'm sat in the sunshine. What on earth have I got to feel angry about? But of course, you know when when we read the book, we, we, depending on our own social circumstances, I guess we, we see and interpret those words in very different ways, and maybe it feels angry to other people. But Facilito, no, he was loving writing, and uh, it it enabled him to live a happy, successful life.
0: One thing we haven't mentioned, and that, that I don't think is mentioned all that much when talking about. Saturday night and Sunday morning, um, is to the, the extent to which the novel is is about the consequences of the Second World War. There are, there are very brief scenes in the novel that are set during the Second World War. How, how is the war depicted in the book and, and how are the, the characters shaped by their experiences of the war?
1: Well, again, you know, for a war to work you need lots of people to sign up and give their life for someone else's cause and someone else's argument. And as a result of that, I, I think this feeds into that sense again of individual freedom, you know. This book is a fight for freedom and, and it's this is why it's so anti-establishment. I mean, again, if I read one little passage Factories sweat you to death. labor exchanges talk you to death. Income tax offices rob you to death and if you' still got if and if you're still left with a tiny bit of life in your guts after all this boggering about the army calls you up and you get shot to death. So you know lots of people a lot of silito's family and that generation you know. They've experienced war. They've seen how horrible it is. They know what it means. And as a result of that, you know, you've got to escape these things if you can. Uh, And there is a scene in the book where one of the relatives um, manages to dodge the draft, you know. And it's kind of perceived that he's got one over on the governors. He's got one over on the system. You know, he's put two fingers up to the authorities so, you know, it's not a kind of, certainly not uh, a sense of patriotism that you should go and fight. It's just another battle that you're dragged into uh, against your will. You know, Arthur Seaton as well, he gets sick to death of people harping on about the good old days. And he just doesn't want any of that, you know, doesn't want to listen about how good things were in the past. He, he wants to uh, carve his own fortune. And again, in terms of the, the changes of, uh, of that society, there's a, a, another quote, and this is it, Raleigh. The thousands that worked there took on good wages, no more short time like before the war, or get in the sack if you stood 10 minutes in the lavatory reading your football post. If the gaffer got onto you now, you could always tell him where to put the job and go somewhere else. So again, you, you know, the, the book in this book, post-war society there's a lot more opportunities for people to to make a living for themselves there's a lot more opportunities to not sit and take it from the establishment from bosses you know there's freedom to to kind of move about but yes um the war for me is just another fight that you're kind of sucked into whether you like it or not. And, of course, trying to escape that is is, is really um, important. I mean, in the book, Arthur does, he has to go and do um, a little bit of training. Um, but, of course, he's an absolute nightmare. I mean, <laughs> he's not going to follow any orders, is he? He doesn't want to be there. If he doesn't want to um, align with people in the factory, he's certainly not going to align with people, you know, in the army. So, yeah the war is just another battle that you kind of get dragged into
0: and and that strikes me as as uh the way the the way the army and the war is talked about it strikes yeah. me as as sort of the opposite of how we've come to to view the second world war as a a sort of time when heroes could could be uh could be elevated above us um you know that criticism of the war criticism of the army uh to come in sort of 1958 i think is is a real sort of eye opening experience for someone reading the novel now where the the war has been sanitized essentially uh, as something that that was uh, a heroic period of british history
1: yeah definitely i mean you know there's that line in the film isn't it i'm out for a good time all the rest is propaganda you know, when th- there is that propaganda of uh, what is right and how you should live and how you should settle down and get married and why it's good to salute the queen—you know—all that kind of rubbish. Not for Satan, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'll—I'll I'll, I'll live my own life, thank you very much. You—you've had your time. What—what what do you think the legacy of Saturday Night and Sunday Morning is?
0: Do you see the influence of Sillitoe in any any writers working today?
1: Um, I think the real legacy of Saturday Night and Sunday Morning is. <laughs> Just to be yourself, to, to have that absolute conviction in what you're doing and not to worry um, what other people think. Um, I, I, and I see that very, very much in lots of things in Nottingham culture as well as literature. Um, Left Line magazine, for example, was set up in the early noughties as a means of combating. Uh, media images which were presenting Nottingham as a crap town, as Shottingham, you know, as a a dangerous place to live. And Left Line, I guess, is a little bit like Viz meets Time Out. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And it does use Silito's strap line, I'm out for a good time, all the rest is propaganda, on the header of each issue. So Silito certainly lives on there. Um, Nicola Monaghan's The Killing Jar. I would say, is a Sillito-esque kind of book. That That's a story about a, a, a young girl called Kerry ann who grows up on a council estate. And again, she's got to survive these kind of tough conditions uh, uh, and live by her wits to get through. And um, Silito did actually review um, Nicola's book, uh, did read it and, and thought it was a very, very good book. So she, she was endorsed by him but um, w- one <laughs> really good example I'd like to share with you um, about the legacy of Saturday night and Sunday morning in Sillito and that whole idea of you know being yourself is a thing in Nottingham called the Rebel Trail so um, at the moment there's been lots of rebranding of Nottingham as a rebel city um, and as part of that There's been talks of uh, literary walks and stuff like that. And a couple of people in Nottingham, um, Rob Howie-Smith and Mark Shutter, uh, decided to do uh, a rebel trail whereby they created um, little uh, plaques with quotes from Silito, Byron and Lawrence. And then they put them around Nottingham. And on each one, it's got the kind of symbol of Nottingham, UNESCO City of Literature. Now, the reason I call this Seton-esque or Sillito-esque is, first of all, they didn't ask if they could use the UNESCO City of Literature branding. They were just like, well, I live in Nottingham and we are UNESCO City of Literature, so I'm endorsing myself. Number two, they couldn't be bothered to wait for the council to approve everything because they knew that would never happen. And number three, there were concerns about costs and things like that, because they did originally approach the council. So they just funded it for themselves, went out in the early hours of the morning, stuck it up around town. And then all of a sudden, everyone's doing these kind of literary trails, talking about these things, and nobody knows where it came from. You know, that for me is the Nottingham spirit. You know, it's just get get it done. Just worry about the consequences after.
0: And the perfect way to describe Saturday night and Sunday morning and Arthur Seaton's sort of worldview, I think. Um, this final question, we're asking every guest on ninety nine the 99 Novels podcast. Uh, if you could choose a hundredth novel to round off Burgess's list, what would it be and why?
1: So the book I'm going to go for is Silito's last published novel. Uh, it's called A Man of His Time. So A Man of His Time, like Saturday night and Sunday morning, are both books that kind of depict England on the brink of change. So, you know, as we've chatted today, Saturday night dealt with the kind of transformations in post-war Britain, but a man of his time follows the fortune um, of a blacksmith's family from the late 1800s up into the present. And what we see really is the kind of damaging effects of maternity um, upon skilled tradesmen, in particular, the replacement of independent living with the welfare state. So quite a controversial theme again here from Silito. But the reason I'm suggesting this book is it features the tyrannical figure of Ernest Burton, who is Arthur Seaton's great-grandfather. He's a hard-grafting blacksmith who reigns over his eight illegitimate sorry, his eight legitimate children, with an iron fist. He rules over the house with a mixture of loyalty and obedience, fear and hatred. He is, without a doubt, the toughest literary figure I have ever read in my life. He makes Arthur Seaton look like a pussycat. So if you love Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and you like bastard characters, you have to read A Man of His Time.
0: Excellent. Well, that's quite the recommendation. James, thanks for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. I've really enjoyed learning more about Silito and I can't wait to read
1: more. Okay, thank you.
0: You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flutes, Strings and Piano in D minor, performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you'd like to join in the conversation and suggest your 100th book to add to Burgess's list, you can use the hashtag 99Novels on Twitter. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.